here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I'm just gonna listen to the little guy. Are you gonna listen? It's a good song. How long is this? <laughs> uh, 18 seconds. Let's just uh, let's just talk. You know where it came from? I don't. I uh, I helped out a uh, a friend who yeah. basically creates uh, he creates intro music and all those those little things those little really yeah and licenses them. He works out of San Francisco and he had a FileMaker database and he sent it to me and I was. So I was like so impressed. It was so cool looking. I was like, yeah. dang, that's got to be a really cool database. And he just wanted help on a, a couple little things. Yeah. And so then he let me use that intro. Nice. Without licensing. So very cool. Uh, so it's been a while. Only two years since we talked. Seems like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You went Maybe a to, couple of months since before pause. Yes. I was going to say you went to pause and I didn't get to go. It was sad that you weren't there. You were missed. Oh, I wish I... Uh, I you're going to have to tell me all the cool stuff. That it was happened. a really, really great conference. I've been to... I, actually, I think I've only missed one pause, which was the first one in New York, the one with two weeks' notice. Um, this one uh, was, I don't know, kind of an interesting departure. So it's, it's very grown up now. Well, <clears throat> so it's a little bit more expensive than it used to be. The previous one you had played a role in right did yeah, you yeah. help with yeah, this yeah. one Gerald Chang and I pr- produced the one previous to this one here in Portland uh, and, and that one was still at the Ace Hotel right and you know the Ace Hotel is you're kind of sitting in bathtubs it's not really like a right you're in the rooms but this right. I saw pictures on Twitter this was regular conference rooms well actually it was nicer conference rooms than we've even ever had at DevCon I would say Wow. I also saw um, a Twitter picture that so he got somebody got some somebody to put their logo or something up on a big building. <laughs> like 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 it actually looked like more official and like cooler than anything I've actually seen. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, ever he, for a he bought event. he bought time. So like every 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. There was a huge FileMaker logo and like the pause logo um up on on two different billboards actually, which are the entire side of a of a building in downtown Cleveland. It was crazy. Well, I mean, the pictures uh-huh. alone sort of like gave me the impression, like, wow, FileMaker yeah. is like bigger than I've ever sort of perceived it to be. Like, you know, like yeah. Amazon Web Services and their conferences or Salesforce exactly. conferences. I'm like, it did feel like that, and it was on the busiest street in the city, so a lot of people saw that sign. Dude, well, congrats to the planning on that one. That's all Gerald Chang, man. <laughs> yeah, so Gerald, Gerald and I did the one in um, Portland because he and I were, were here. Uh, and then he did that one in Cleveland with Dan Weiss, a data stall. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Gerald is really good at planning and executing stuff like that. Really, really re- well done. And so the, there was four concurrent sessions. Three of them were in rooms kind of like the DevCon room, except they had like desks and really nice comfortable chairs and awesome projection screens. And then the other one was in a theater which was uh, every like a gigantic movie theater. Uh, every seat had a power recliner, 
What? <laughs> yeah, it was really comfortable. Jeez. So the Find Your Moose conference in Chicago last year um, was also kind of like that. It was actually the Find Your Moose conference was one set, one track. It was you couldn't. There was only one thing to go to. Right. Which was great. Love that. Um, and that was also in a really super comfortable theater with really good internet. Oh yeah, we had like hundred megabit internet. Never went down. It was perfect. The whole conference. Well, uh, what's the what's the difference? I mean, where there were a hundred people or two hundred people? I mean, uh, hundred and twenty-four, I think. Okay, so yeah, DevCon is like twelve, fifteen. It's yep. in between twelve hundred and fifteen hundred now. I think. Yep, I think they're aiming for fifteen this time, or something like that. So, like, what did they of the stuff that you went? What did they cover? Because I mean, at Pause, you typically get your real deep dive. You know, the stuff that people are doing that's more of your hardcore filemaker. They're not. They don't have as wide of an audience to cater to as they do at DevCon. Um, true. Um, yeah. So it, it's also it's also self um, assigning of of uh, sessions. There's no you know process to go through. If you want to speak. You ask for permission to edit the schedule. Everybody gets permission to edit it. You add yourself on the schedule against whoever you want to add yourself against, and poof, you speak. So, so what did you go to? What What did you, like, see? I went to a lot. Um, well, anything cool, like, that you remember? I mean, it's it's hard to pick out the cool stuff when you, you know, have been in FileMaker for so long, there's got to be stuff that you heard people talking yeah. about or showing. Or... Well, there was definitely some cool stuff. And actually, maybe the highlight, like technically, we had a, a really, there was two hour lunches every day. And uh, Clay Mackle came from FileMaker. Oh, that's and, awesome. Um, I know. He's super great and really fun to hang out with. Um, and he was really geeking out on some deep stuff that goes into FileMaker. You're getting the perspective of what it's like to actually make FileMaker and what his day is like writing C code. Um, and you know, the kind of things, you know, seeing that was really, really great. Uh, because you know, a lot of FileMaker, we're looking, we're, we're a lot of navel gazers. We spend time caring about our one feature that we care that we want and complaining that FileMaker hasn't added that one feature into the, the last three versions or whatever, even though clearly it's the most important feature since the beginning of time. <laughs> and, and then hearing him talk about, oh, yeah, you know, uh, the things he has to do with, like, oh, yeah, when we had to change all the everything from Cocoa to, or from Carbon to Cocoa in the, in the Mac version and change all the drivers over from this library to that library in the Windows version and all this other stuff. And when are we going to get these other features like the Windows version running in one window and all this stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And, and, and seeing kind of what goes into it from his perspective doing it was was definitely riveting. No one got up from that table for the two hours he was being peppered with questions. Well, uh, I mean, that's... Yeah, when you get the ranters and the ravers on, like, FileMaker's community forums and stuff like that, yeah. and they say, why can't FileMaker do this? Right. I mean, nobody except whoever's closest to the code has any idea of what type of... Uh, just on regression testing that you would have mm -hmm. to do from the time that you implement something new. Oh, Totally. It's like I've heard that they run like multiple days of tests. I don't know if they're doing, you know, unit testing on their code or mm. what they're doing, but that's I mean just the two environments, Mac and Windows, mm -hmm. and then having to main maintain your iOS and then all that other stuff. And WebDirect. Oh yeah, yeah. So you've got FileMaker Go plus FileMaker Pro plus WebDirect. Oh my god, that's a lot. But anyway, seeing all that be put aside for the moment 
some of those same people who were ranters on the forums. Oh, in fact, at that table were, were the two biggest posters to the, to the forum um, for features. That's Vince Bonanno and Chris Irvine. They're number one and two, like, by far. Wow. And they were, they were both sitting there next to each other talking to Clay about this stuff. It was really beautiful. I wouldn't have known that they were number one and two. I know they've got day jobs, so where are they coming up with the time? Because I don't know. And I their, don't have the time to post. Were great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, they're both just awesome people, too. Um, so, yeah, that was good. Let's see. What did I go to? Um, yeah, there's some... Oh, yeah. Vince actually did a session on auditing. I'm looking at the schedule right now on pauscleveland2016.wikispaces.com. Um, now, did they record can, any of them? Pardon? Did they record any of them? Or? No, this time, I, I, some individual presenters may have, but recording wasn't a part of the deal. Mm. Uh, in my opinion, that's because when you're recording, your uh, audience is actually the microphone and not the people in the room. And so I think you get a very, very different session when you know you're recording it and there's a mic in your face and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's also just a, all, editing and dealing with all that content. It's huge amount of content. Yeah, uh, I'm as not, I know it because I was. It was my job to actually record and release it one year. Yeah, so. when you were working with John mm-hmm. and uh, Ernest and those guys when they yep. were running it. Yeah, no, I knew that that was. I really wish. I mean, because my perspective of, of recording is basically just record the screen and then upload as is no post-production no editing it is like just record because people just want the pure uh, content value Mm -hmm. and so that's what i was i would hope more people would do that at pause but i can see the distraction of doing But some of the best ones were actually just pure discussion there was no screen ah slap down an iphone somebody turn on your mp4 recorder and People will eat that stuff up. They just want to know what people are talking about when they can't go to something like that. Yeah, well, for next time, maybe we'll record it then. Um, Just like you say, just super informal. Stick a recording device in front of the speaker and also good enough to capture the room. Um, Or if we would come up with the time, we could ask anybody who attended Pause, who's listening to this, or who attends DevCon, who has insight and knowledge that they want to share beyond, provided Mm -hmm. there's no limitations, contact us and... Let's let's talk about it on the podcast. That's what people yep. want to sure want to hear about. Um, I did a I moderated a panel on server. That was kind of good. It was fun to be able to pepper some server geniuses with questions. Um, some Albert Haram Alvarez did a interface one that was against the one I did, so I didn't get to go. Now speaking of server, mm-hmm. uh, how do you feel about bringing to light the little thing that we just learned recently? The piece of information that you gave me about uh, what was on your server, or the server, since I'm on your server, over oh, at ODI. Oh, so you mean that the bug that we're just discovering, or well, the I don't log know that thing, it's or? yeah, the log thing. I don't know that it's actually a bug, but I no, think it's no, something people it's should be aware of. They should definitely be aware of it. Yeah, I agree. And so what you're talking about is if you if you have a PHP solution that calls a script and it sends script parameters to that script that the entire event is logged in the public, in the totally open log with no security on it. Uh, it's right there in the FileMaker log file. Yep. So, so, so if you have a script, like a button that calls a script on web, and it says, you know, create an order, here's my name, here's my social security number, here's my, um, uh, you know, address and credit card number and all that stuff. 
even though the database is actually secure and even though the transaction is secure, if the server has a certificate, FileMaker will actually log that and store that in open text right in the, in the logs folder in the FileMaker server. Correct. So the rule of thumb is basically nothing is sacred, encrypted, or protected through any script parameters or variables in the FMP URL when called through custom web publishing. There you go. Now, I mean, FileMaker, and, you know, FileMaker Pro doesn't do that, of course. It doesn't, it doesn't, the logging doesn't capture individual scripts running a FileMaker Pro database, but with web, with, uh, also true with WebDirect. It's all obscured, not logged. But uh, PHP does log all that. Yeah, and so that would be up to FileMaker to correct if they wanted to sort of uh, go beyond just to... They're not even obscuring what's in a script parameter in the URL. It's just logged as a plain text. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not necessarily a bug because anybody who would be able to access that would need to have access to the server Mm -hmm. and then would need to have access to the account under which FileMaker server is running and access to the web publishing engine log file. Exactly. So you can limit your exposure there in terms of your risk, but uh, it would be nice if they simply would uh, sort of treat those as sacred and not actually log those. The workaround in this situation would be that if you wanted to obscure your content from being logged, you would actually need to encrypt that content first as an encrypted script parameter then, once you're inside the FileMaker side of things, de-encrypt. Whoa. So, within PHP, you could use uh, any type of hashing algorithm mm-hmm. or encryption. Encrypt your script parameter. No, FileMaker you can't use a hash. Retrieve it. Yeah. You can't use a hash is one way. Oh, I mean, yeah, you're not, you're not going to use a, like an MD5 or anything right. like that. Right. But you can't encrypt it with a key. Yes. So, you're going to encrypt, uh, you know, within your PHP script, your parameter prior to actually sending to FileMaker. Mm-hmm. Then FileMaker receives it, and they're going to need to unencrypt once you're within FileMaker. Now, the crappy thing is that adds overhead. That's for sure. Uh, so, you know, FileMaker, if you're listening, and uh, now that everyone knows, you know, just don't log your script parameters and your variables. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of theoretical. So, okay, so we know about this thing, but really, if you have access to the server itself, then you also have access to the database file. And yes, if, but and, if and, that's encrypted you, with uh, encryption at rest, you right. can't get into it. Exactly, and the logs cannot be encrypted like that because they're just text. Right. So, um, I mean, anybody, any server that becomes compromised using any type of server-wide search, I mean, you can open a Linux mm-hmm. server and just type in grep, and you can grep root looking for any type of pattern which matches Social Security, credit card, mm-hmm. whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, Hackers know their stuff. They can... I mean, I don't care if I'm not sitting there doing it and the computer's going to run a server-wide search off of root. Hey, <laughs> find whatever you want to find and just report back to me. So, yeah, it'd be nice if they'd, uh, if they'd uh, sort of not log that stuff. Yep. But it was nice to find. It's yes, nice. for sure. It's and nice we, we, we found that because I was working with FileMaker to uh, resolve an issue that we're having with WebDirect where the web publishing engine quits working every few days. Which turns out to be a memory leak in um, Tomcat. So the Tomcat logs actually are showing memory leaks. So we're we're now troubleshooting and finding out what the cause of that is. So there's something in my web direct code on one solution that's causing Tomcat's uh, to fill up its RAM and then uh, come up with a memory leak and then crash. Hmm. 
um, which causes WebDirect to go deaf, basically. So it says it's still running, but if you try to hit the server, it doesn't respond. Uh, stopping and starting WebDirect on the, or the web publishing engine will fix it. Um, but it's just, you know, so it's actually a really super easy workaround, but pretty annoying if you have a solution that is supposed to be up all the time. If huh. it goes down at, you know, 7 p.m. On a, on a Friday night, it's not good if you're not around all the time. That's, that's the, what's so crummy about technology sometimes. You can put the technology in place and you have to work hard in order to get it there sometimes. But then mm -hmm. when it fails, if you don't actually create additional technology to watch for when it fails... And then, of course, you go down the rabbit hole. If the technology you created to watch doesn't actually work and it fails, <laughs> create something to watch that. The watcher, the watcher, the watcher. Never yep. mind. I'm yeah, you know, I actually funny. put in a watcher to, to look for when WebDirect was down, which didn't work, so that I could get a text notification. Yeah. But, but WebDirect is all, um, it's all JavaScript, and so it doesn't really go deaf, if you look for a particular thing, like I was looking for some particular icon in the WebDirect landing page, and if I keep looking for that, well, that's still there because it's actually just in a directory of a thing. But if you call the regular index page or whatever and asked it to process JavaScript and give you back a response with a page, it wouldn't do that. So it, it was deaf, deaf to a human, but not deaf to a computer who was trying to check it, you know? Hmm. That was very, that was annoying. Oh. And then I tried another one too, like a... Um, what did I do? I did some script that ran every 15 minutes on the server. That was a FileMaker server script that looked for something. That didn't work. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I had a FileMaker database uh, load the page um, in a web viewer and okay. then just use FileMaker to try to do it. But that didn't work either because it's JavaScript. And, web, and web viewer, you can't parse a JavaScript page. Because all you get is the raw JavaScript code. Oh, uh, now that's that. You get the original source JavaScript. You get code. the original source JavaScript code. That's not one the thing I wish they would do. I wish they would actually just give us, you know, updated HTML, whatever the DOM has been modified mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. within web viewers. That would solve yep. and give us a lot of capabilities. Yep. I didn't realize about that. So yeah, interesting. Anyway, so all good. We're working through that. Let's see what else was at pause. Um, so much. Uh, after, first of all, the other highlight was in that theater, we got permission to use that theater for karaoke. Uh, that was fun. And there was a bar right outside, so there was a lot of, a lot of alcohol-infused karaoke. <laughs> and, um, and there was some uh, – I did a few songs. Uh, Joey Grimaldi from ODI did a bunch of great songs. Um, Gerald did a couple. I won't comment as to whether they were good or not. <laughs> Um, there was several, oh yeah, yeah. There was also something that uh, Joey did called, um, cause Joey has all the karaoke, I don't know, 50,000 songs in his computer or something like that. I can't remember what he called it, but basically it was like, um, you go up on the stage and he picks a song for you. Okay, you know it I've or you don't. That. Yeah. He did that. And that was pretty awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish I could have gone. Yeah, it was good. Uh, let's see, Dave Ramsey, he's the guy who wrote F, um, FM X-Ray Specs. He's got some really awesome new stuff coming, which I recommend you look at that. He actually showed it to me. Oh, yes. He, he gave me a personal walkthrough of, the, uh, of what he's got going. I am stoked. Yes. It I processes am, a DDR in like two I seconds. am so significantly stoked. And yeah. it, it's the concept is something that I... 
had thought of doing for myself, not to the extent that he did, but just for what I, just for like a singular purpose. So like, for example, a lot of the times people, when they want to process the DDR, Mm -hmm. they do not want the wealth of information that's in that. They just want to address one specific thing. For example, Mm -hmm. I want to find out where and how many times this one field is used. Right. I want to know, is it in, you know, five scripts, one script, is it mm-hmm. used on six different layouts? And that's all I really want to know. Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, I will uh, export the DDR, open it within Chrome, and just use the browser's simple find feature. Mm-hmm. And that tells me, oh, I found five occurrences. Okay, at least that gives me some insight. So what that, in my mind, is more of a just-in-time processing. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing with the DDR. Once he loads the metadata of a DDR, he's then processing that and then if you want to know further information, he was doing just-in-time processing of, okay, you asked about this field. Here, I'm going to find that information. Okay, you, you asked about this script. Here, I'm going to give you that information. As opposed to the two current uh, market contenders is um, Vince has Inspector and then Nick has Base Elements. Mm-hmm. Both of those solutions are, let's process the full DDR Mm-hmm. every iota of information, and then let's load it into a, a database so that you can actually search and investigate. Right. And so I'm really looking forward to his because once I saw how fast it was actually moving, I'm like, that is exactly what I want because using you know just the regular search in Chrome does yep. not always give you what you need to know. I don't know if it's quite ready for release, um, but that's coming really soon. Uh, pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So it. what else was there? Um Couple different things on on logging, which is cool. Logging not only um, uh, changes that users make, but also logging schema changes. Um, let's see, virtualizing FileMaker server, Agile. Um, Brian Schick did one that I missed, I which which is sad. I would love to have seen what he did. He did one on what makes an app an app. So ah. FileMaker tips and techniques for the new, um, the new tool for creating apps that can go in the App Store. Now there are quite a few FileMaker apps in the App Store, Yeah, uh, which is pretty cool. That's, I've, uh, I've been keeping tabs a little bit on that. As soon as I, hit, uh, I saw that there were you know, four or five of them, I thought, okay, it's here. It'll work. We can uh, use this and actually get in the App Store. Jonathan Fletcher did a really good roundtable on Selector Connector, kind of a very different take on it. So it's, that's a continually maturing technology. Uh, Perrin did a really cool, cool one on GIS integration uh, and it was talking about um, iBeacons and kind of how to play with those, what different ways you can do that. Um, have you done anything with Selector Connector? Like, have Yeah, you- I've done a few. But, but- I, it, I, honestly, I have a hard time... I got so far down the road of religiously not connecting my togs that connecting all my togs together, it, it, I have a really hard time with it. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm, I'm personally working on a solution where I started implementing it. For me, the whole notion is uh, I know that Todd and uh, Jason, they promoted using, I don't know if it was just Todd or Jason as well, but they promoted using two separate table occurrences, one called selector and one called connector. Mm-hmm. But from yeah. from the fundamental uh, standpoint of how the whole thing works, you're basically just keeping one table of globals 
isolated out from the rest of your solution. Mm-hmm. And it's through that one table of globals where they actually use two tables that you mm-hmm. can connect to any other table currents. Exactly. And one thing I am, I am noticing is that while it does give you universal access to all of these, um, let's call them single-use connections, like mm-hmm. a connection from a global field which contains um, a set of keys that will access you know, a number of customers, instead of having to have that connected off of multiple different table occurrences, as you do in Anchor Buoy, mm-hmm. you have it just that singular location. But the problem is, if you do not have such clearly defined naming conventions, you no longer have a segmentation in your database that makes it easy to mentally parse things. Because when you select on your any table occurrence, that one table occurrence sees all other table occurrences. And so having to pick your path becomes a little bit of a, an issue, especially on a, a large solution. Mm-hmm. Especially. So, yep, I get that. But here, kind of the whole selector connector thing to me comes down to this. The reason that I would use it would be for pickers, would be to get a really good way to show data that's not super closely related to where I am. So if I'm like on an invoice and I want to pick a sales rep who gets credit for that invoice, that's a very distantly related table. Yeah. And so if I want to pop up a list of all the sales reps, Selector Connector can do that really nicely in a really FileMaker native kind of a thing, like, um, like a, a portal. But I, I don't want to use my graph for that because the graph is the structure of a database. I, w- I want a purely um, UI widget for that um, that I can use in a popover or a new window or whatever. And so I've been, I've been kind of playing with this. Actually, we, we have a, new, uh, um, a free utility that we have in development right now um, that will be a picker, and it will work kind of like search results worked. Um, that's completely doesn't require any relationship at all to uh, where you're trying to go. So it, it opens up like a, a off-screen window or dubs some sort of a query, like a perform script on server kind of a thing. Um, to get related data and then shows you that data either in a virtual list or actually what we're looking at now and the main technique that I want to sort of discuss with you is um, button bars. Because a button bar, each segment of a button bar can be a calculation result. Correct. Unlike a button. But you're limited by the finite number of uh, segments that you put on a button bar as opposed to a portal which can unlimitedly scroll. Um, sure, but a portal re- realistically is useless beyond, say, 50 or 100 rows for scrolling. You don't, it's just not a good UI to have that. Take, take for example, Gmail on the web. By default, it shows you, what, 25 or 50 mail messages. A certain a web page could certainly scroll forever, but it's really, really bad to do that. So instead, you paginate. True. That's for the web, but on, you know, go into the uh, preferences application on iOS and you're going to have as many (laughs) scrollable preference items as you have applications that provide them. So, I mean, the metaphor is different when you're working on a desktop than Mm -hmm. it is when you're working on a mobile device. Well, even on a mobile device, I can't think of any screen that you'd scroll for like, you know, a mile. It's just there, there has to be once it gets beyond a certain height you need a different widget to sort of select and make it easy to do. And like if you do a Google search, you're really looking at page one results, page one, page two, something like that. So 
So I think actually in those cases where you can actually have a set of results and show 25 things and use something like a button bar widget. Right. Um, so the thing I love about that is you can just populate them with variables. Yeah. You, know, you can have a script that runs as a perform script on server that does whatever it's going to do and query some table and then comes back with results, which can then be put onto a uh, button bar. And then the button bar segment, you can click on it, and it's a button. So it can either be a popover or a button or whatever you want it to be. You've got all the formatting options and all the other things. Um, I think it's going to be uh, – I think it's – there's a lot of power hiding under that. We're using it for a ton of things already. Well, I, can, um, I mean, definitely, if you're going to work with a fixed set of objects, if you're going to – since you threw out 25, mm-hmm. if a 25 is your count, you're going to create 25 you know, individual segments on a button bar – and then underneath that, you're going to have maybe a you know another little two segment button bar that's you know next and back yeah. or forward and previous and yep. paginate. Hey, go for it! Oh, right, here's another great example of it. Let's say you have um, a uh, checkbox set on your layout, and you have and you it has 20 choices on it. And so right now, it uses a lot of screen real estate because you want all those 20 choices to be able to click, and you can select multiples of them. Right. So what I've been doing is I've been making one-segment button bars. And on the text of the one-segment button bar, I use a calculation, which does a substitute, and it substitutes returns with comma space. So if you check six choices from that list of 20, they show up in a really small amount of space on one or two lines on the button bar object. Right. Uh, And then the button bar segment is actually a popover. So if you click it, over to the right of it appears a um, uh, the the popover with the the same uh, checkbox set that you've already have been using. So you're saving a huge amount of screen real estate, and then uh, making it super easy. You're making it more intentional for the user; they can't accidentally check things. Oh, nice! And you're and you're compressing the amount of space you're using on the layout, but you're still showing all the choices up to however much space you want to define. It's a really really good UI. So basically what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to send me all of these uh, space savers because my DevCon uh, session is designing in tight spaces. Oh, you are going to so – we're we're doing a huge redesign of my largest application, and it's all about space savers. So that's uh, what I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of iOS development, Mm -hmm. and my session is going to be about, okay, you know, how do you start – you know, with the mindset of I've mm-hmm. got to design this as small as possible, your iPhone 5, mm-hmm. 5S, mm-hmm. maybe even a 4 if somebody's still using those. Well, they just came out with a new smaller phone, so. Yeah, same, <laughs> the same screen size as the 5S, and yep. then, you know, move up from there. But you've got to have all these little, you know, space savers in order to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I've got a great little model that I'm using where um, – you can use a combination of a portal and a slider, just a two-pane slider next to the portal in order to simulate uh, the iOS metaphor of the cards, where you know you go into a preference and it moves over, and mm-hmm. then you click the arrow that takes you back, and then mm-hmm. you scroll down and go over to the next one. Mm-hmm. That's basically a portal, a listing of all of the items you want to control. When you mm-hmm. tap on one of them, then you just move over in sliders. Right. So you can have a slider that has something like 50 different preference settings, and you're just basically choosing to go to each one of those. The really cool thing is when you click on the button that's in the portal row, one of the fields in this uh, like settings table 
actually has the name of the object that you want to go to, which is basically just the, the panel within the slider. So you can have a, you know, this portal lists 50 different items. Mm-hmm. You click on item number five and it says go to panel number five. Mm-hmm. And so if you switch between like the very first panel and whatever target panel you, you want, you get this simulated effect that looks just like the iOS settings of right, going yeah. into a yeah, section and back, going into another section exactly. and back. Exactly. Yeah, the left-right swipe kind of effect. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. David and Thomas uh, at my office here were working yesterday on something and got it almost perfected. But using a slider um, on a portal, you can swipe left and then a delete button appears on that line. Yep. And then you click delete and it deletes the item. Uh, they didn't get it quite done, but it was so close. He only had a, you know, not that much time to work on it, but um, I would love to get that one completed. It works. It looks exactly just like a regular old delete, like in a list of emails or something. Yep. Um, I so, just, yeah. I just, the, the video that I just released was about creative sliders and showing people how to do um, their, they call them hamburger menus, but those fly out menus, they were popular a couple uh, years back. Mm-hmm. Everybody was putting them into their software, but then they found out that they have low discoverability and so they're not really good for navigation, but they're mm-hmm. still good for, uh, you know, progressive disclosure and showing things as they're needed and using sliders in that way. Low discoverability. I love it. <laughs> it might have low discoverability, but if it's more performant, <laughs> that's another, <laughs> that's my other favorite phrase, more performant. <laughs> well, you know, they call it, some, some people on the web call it the basement menu, you know, because you don't know. It's not there in front of you. You don't mm-hmm. know what you have available to you until you click it. Yeah. So, but that's all UX, UI talk stuff. Yeah. You it's have important a, stuff. You have a panel, right? Uh, yes. At DoveCon, I'm doing a panel on, um, on WebDirect. So I've done a few WebDirect solutions, but I haven't done a ton. And I really wanted to talk to people who are doing a ton of them. And there's some really large ones out there. Um, and also, there's some companies like Adatasol, Dan Weiss. He's actually spending, he's, he's, he's uh, really going after WebDirect solutions uh, and has figured out all the, you know, all the ways of making it extremely efficient. So a lot of times he's going to come to a customer and build a solution and have it be only a WebDirect solution. You know, wow. the customer doesn't really get any FileMaker licenses. They're just buying the concurrent licenses on the server, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I wonder what... I mean, it would be nice to know from FileMaker, you know, what type of mental thought process they have in terms of, I mean, obviously they want to sell server and they want to sell seats, but are they wanting to have more of those seats be WebDirect clients or do they want to sell more copies of FileMaker as well? And, or do they not care and want to sell all of them? I've never really gotten a sense. Uh, the, the web technology for me has always been something... I don't know that it's an afterthought for them, mm-hmm. but obviously WebDirect was a vast jump uh, above yes. instant web publishing. That's for sure. But still, I have this little thing. It's probably because I work in other languages as well. I have this bias that I'm just like, why didn't they make it so that you could plug in your own JavaScript libraries? And I know that I know their reasoning currently because of how mm-hmm. they're using Vaadin, and they need full control over you know a lot of their um, bi-directional communication mm-hmm. but well because they yeah they have a they have a really really strong um mandate internally to, to have it be like feature identical on the different platforms right 
Yeah. To have to have uh, so that you can just take any old FileMaker solution, pretty much, uh, as long as it's themed and you know pretty modern. Turn it on for WebDirect and turn on for FileMaker Go, and it'll just work. And then from there, you can, if you choose to redesign it specifically for that platform, you can. But like a feature, and it's all pixel perfect, so your layouts look the same on all those platforms. Um, Which all the CSS and the rendering is great. It's wonderful by me. I just feel that they missed the ball in terms of, you look at at the open source world and community, and you Mm -hmm. know that the reason that it's taken off is because of leverage when you're able to take advantage of technologies that somebody else developed. Right. Not you, and so FileMaker sort of they they sort of pass that to the side of like there's hundreds of thousands of JavaScript libraries. Why don't we just let it so that developers who use FileMaker technology take advantage of our technology, but tap in and leverage these other technologies? Mm-hmm. Let's allow the embedding of third-party JavaScript libraries, and let's, let's provide users with an ability to hook those up to their to our objects to the mm-hmm. buttons that we're going to render. And I just I crave for that because you have that power in those other languages. Well, you gotta um, start a thread on that on the FileMaker feature request forum, you know, on the I community it's, site. It's just so. I think it's obvious. I don't know. Not obvious, but uh, I don't know where they draw the level at what's too advanced in terms of the tech they want to put in place versus we just want users to use what we build. Well, I mean, I, I, at one hand, I get what you're saying, but I think that as a community, we sometimes have ideas like this and have thoughts like this or even have things we experience as a bug and we don't bother telling FileMaker about it. So I think that forum is hugely important. True. Um, that's actually it. kind of funny. Out, uh, that, that technology is built on um, Jive, that, right. that company. And that's Java-based, uh, I think. Right, yeah, that's what the FileMaker community site is built in. I look out my window at the uh, Jive World Headquarters here in Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're just down the street from me. Um, uh, Let's see. So what else we got, man? We should talk a little bit about the upcoming... Well, I guess we talked about DevCon already. What's your what's your panel going to be? Your not panel, your uh, session. Uh, Designing in tight spaces. It's a focus on mobile uh, mobile design approach. How quickly I forget. We talked about that five minutes ago, didn't we? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just a, a design one. I think they yep. they've got me tagged as this as like a design guy, and yeah, so well, I, you know, you've got the skills there, man. Go I for like it. this. I like the security ones too, but I would I'd be showing people all the security. Like here's <laughs> yeah, here's what you need to protect because here's yeah. how easy it is to make FileMaker not secure. Yeah. So. They really should lock some things down by default. I mean, they should make it so that you have to turn things off instead of having to turn things right. on. Like, you know, files accessing other files. And an immediate, an immediate password, the first thing, I, I, can't, I can't even count the number of times that people, because of convenience, they just throw a FileMaker database up. And they throw it up with Yikes. admin and blank. Yeah, and Ooh. it's just like, uh, yeah. As soon as you have the IP, you just the the first thing you try is admin and blank. Oh, look yeah. at that! There's five different databases. Thank you for all the holes into yeah. <laughs> into the server to poke and prod. And I'm just like, oh, come on! We gotta. We're living in a world that like every day. I'm just yeah. like astounded by the amount of security breaches in the past, you know, three years alone. From, you know, not FileMaker, but in other things, yeah, bigger things. Yeah, just, I mean, you know, 
major corporations with uh, oh the Target one was awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just, where the cash registers were hacked. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like you, you. No company can afford to not take a security fir- first mental approach and do everything possible. Almost make it difficult for the developer to get something out conveniently because they have to. They have to say, well, we have to secure data first. You know, if you want to do it, yeah, maybe it's a hassle that you have to go in and unclick and uncheck these boxes, but that's our responsibility. And look at Apple. They're standing up Mm -hmm. for themselves and saying, listen, no, this is the most important thing here. Mm -hmm. So not like that's anything that FileMaker needs to herald. Well, I I hear what you're saying. I guess I I have this routine that I go through. Every time I get a database from a customer, I go through and do a lot of the stuff you're talking about. I go to the check the box in security that says nothing um, can connect to this file unless it gets authenticated. Require FileMaker 14 to open up to the file. Um, Delete, you know, never have an account uh, that's, that's admin. So there is no account called admin. The only full access users are people. Yeah. Um, or well, obscured well, accounts or something like that. Minimally change the name to yeah, something. Yeah, but actually I, don't, I never have a generic login where, multi, more than, more, where more than one person knows the password to the, that particular account, if I can avoid it. I always have it be individual people who have accounts for all full access users. So if someone leaves, you just go through and uncheck that account. If they come back, you can check back on or whatever. Um, and then make sure that there's a few full access accounts. You know, me, someone on my team, and the customer. Yeah. So that if something really bad happens, you know, there's, there's a way in. Uh, yep. I, I, I wouldn't put a file hosted until I do that. And I've been, I've been really pushing towards getting all files hosted. We have all um, – actually, I think now – yeah, I think every single one of our customers now – uh, in the last year or two, has a WAN hosted solution. They don't run it. They don't run FileMaker Server in their own building. If they, a lot of them own FileMaker Server, but they're running it on a on a virtualized server on the internet. Yeah, because there's there's no reason not to do it. I mean, the only reason to do it internally would be um, kind of an old slow database that just doesn't perform very well. I actually have to take that back. There's a couple of there's a couple of exceptions, and that is if they have um, like an accounting system or something that they have internally, and they want to be able to have the server connect directly to that other server. That would be a very good reason to run server internally. Or if you want to just stay totally within your own subnet, just never have anything sure. go outside of your own firewalls. Right. Well, like the super secure people, it's WAN hosted, but in a secure WAN. So. Yeah. Yeah. Security these days. It's but for, important. for small companies, cloud. Yep. Cloud is king. <laughs> I saw uh, there was a, somebody posted on Twitter the other day, and I've always, uh, the whole notion of the cloud being a word that for non-technical people is just like sort of this mystical thing that's out there and the, mm-hmm. the sticker was this picture of a cloud but the cloud itself had like tears and it was crying it said the cloud doesn't really exist silly it's just someone else's computer that's funny <laughs> i thought that was so awesome oh man for those of us that are old i mean predating the quote-unquote yeah. cloud you know gopher you remember oh yeah gopher protocol oh yep i remember it 
So. I remember NCSA Telnet 1.0, man. Or not Telnet. Uh, Mosaic 1.0. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. I was, mm-hmm. in, uh, was in college when I was using that. And Telnet was the method for... Uh, I used to connect to a system called LexisNexis. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, everything you were doing, they, you know, whoever had packet sniffers back then was far and few between, but everything, 100% of everything you did was pure and clear across the mm-hmm. wire. Yep. And, uh, yeah. But, and there were packet sniffers back then, too. There were a few people that had them that knew yeah. how to use them. Yeah. But not like they're baked into the operating systems of today. Yeah, true. I remember using a packet sniffer back in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s maybe, for network troubleshooting. Uh, back in the days of 4 or 16 megabit token ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, let's not talk about how old we are, Matt. Old enough. Old yeah. enough that uh, token ring. Wow. I never used that myself. Yeah. I take net- great network. joy in, in where the state of technology now and not thinking too much about all that old stuff about installing token ring cards in Mac twos. <laughs> I remember all. I remember SCSI. SCSI's still around though. Yeah, it's going. Jeez. Yeah, we're dating ourselves. All right, yep. FileMaker. <laughs> what do we have? What do we have left for FileMaker talk? Anything? Um, we're, on, we're going on forty-five now. Well, I had that I had that one tip that I think is really cool of using those the single segment um, button bars. That's and then using that calculation thing heavily and using that to replace things. That has been um, a, like a total light bulb moment for me uh, to start doing that. So, what you have a tip like that you want to leave people with? Um, well, one thing I've been doing. Uh, Recently, I actually uh, showed this in my re- most recent video about uh, sliders, is <clears throat> if you want to bring something up on screen that forces user interaction, for example, I'm using transparent popovers. Mm-hmm. So I'll use a popover, and that popover will more or less be anchored to you know all the sides, mm-hmm. and it will be the same uh, dimension as the layout itself. Yeah, like a full screen? Yeah, okay. essentially so that whatever I put in the popover actually becomes an overlay on top of uh, of my user interface underneath. Mm-hmm. So if you do this with sliders, sliders actually allow you to click through sliders to access fields, or the fields will bleed through a slider if a slider is put on top of uh, your user interface, inclusive of all your fields and everything. The one way that you can Wait, block... run that by me again? <clears throat> so, so if you have a popover and the slider is underneath it, and you oh. click on something in the popover, it actually hits it in the slider, or is that what you're saying? No, popovers will obscure. If you let's uh, start right. with a blank layout, uh-huh. you've got ten fields on the layout. Okay, so the user can click into those any of those ten fields. Okay, if you're going to use a popover, you can show a popover, and the popover will obscure that, even yeah. if the popover is transparent, transparent, right? Because the popover is an obscuring object. Yeah, partially transparent full-screen popovers are another awesome, beautiful thing because it feels like a um, it feels like a modal dialogue. Yes, so you can bring that's what it, exactly what you can use a transparent mm-hmm. popover for. You can mm-hmm. put whatever you want on screen uh, a drop well, uh, 
you know, a picture, a dialogue, mm -hmm. a, a faux dialogue. Right. But with sliders, if a slider is on top of objects or above in the layout stacking order, mm -hmm. fields can still bleed through. You can you you can still click into the fields. I think it's if they're partially obscured, which was my particular case hmm. where I was implementing this. So the only way that I could solve the problem where the user couldn't still click into fields, clicking through the slider, was I, you need to put something that will intercept clicks, and that's a button object. Mm -hmm. So I had to put a, a, a button object, which was like a 50% black, and then put a hide calculation on that button object so that when the, my slider, which was an overlay, was actually hidden as well, it had to meet a certain condition, and then I would show it above my whole layout. So, so a slider and a tab panel, are I, the way that I thought that they worked was identical in that an object is either on the slider, so that if you move the slider or tab panel around the layout, everything on it moves with it, or underneath it. Correct. And so you're saying that if, if something is partially obscured by a slider... So you have one panel of a slider which is transparent entirely. Then the layout will just work and everything that's on there will just work. But there's, but, but that uh, it's possible for a slider to have an active panel which then is on top of those fields, but you can still click through the slider panel to the fields? That's what I was experiencing, yes. Okay, yeah. That would make sense to me. So like if, uh, if, if the slider is above your, all the rest of your layout and it's covering over part of the fields... Even though you go onto one, any of the panels on the slider, I was still able to click into the fields. Right. And that was a, that was a problem. I, I didn't want the user to access anything of the mm -hmm. layout underneath. So I, had, I needed to obscure that. So and you I, didn't want to put the layout underneath on one of the pane, on panes of the slider? No, not because of where the slider needed to be. It was okay. only covering part of the layout, not the full layout. Okay. And so I had to come up with a way to obscure that. And so I had to think to myself, well, buttons receive clicks and they will go over fields. So anytime that you want to basically mask off all interactivity with a layout, you can mm -hmm. use a button that does nothing. You could have invisibility too. You could make the fields invisible if a certain slider pane was active or something, but that's, got, that's a lot of work. Yeah, this was just a little bit easier because all I needed to do is populate a global variable... If it was populated, I refresh the button object, and it mm. instantly obscures the whole layout. Got it. So that one button goes on top of all those things. Yeah. Nice. Well done. And then above that button, you can put whatever you want. Yeah, including the, the slider. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you got three layers, basically. Yeah. Slider on top, button beneath, and then fields beneath that. Yep. Cool. And the cool thing is the, the button object, which is obscuring your whole user interface, you can make that also... Tied to a script, which basically does a dismiss, or you know, get hides your your overlay. So it makes that super easy. Is that FileMaker has this awesome layer control, like Photoshop or Illustrator? Oh wait, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's just one of those things I dream about at night. <laughs> oh yeah, that reusable layout parts. Oh yeah, I know. I cannot wait. Oh, that's going to be great. I mean, if we if we should ever have such a thing, yeah. Because I spent a lot of time making like really, really perfect navigation top parts, you know. Oh yeah. And then to have to copy and paste that to every layout, it's like ah. That what you just said right there. That's my notion of FileMaker. FileMaker, I call it in mentally, I call it the copy and paste app. 
because you are copying and pasting so much from mm. calculations, custom functions, layouts, uh, layout objects. You're just copying, pasting, copying, pasting. Now, yeah. I think that's like one of the number one reasons why FileMaker is so popular for the knowledge worker and for people who are, you know, but it's also the reason that it's so frustrating for people who have worked in, you know, text-based languages. They're just like, why can't I just write the code and have it do something? Why can't I write this class mm -hmm. or this object? It, because you got to copy and paste. <laughs> well, yeah, to some degree. <clears throat> I don't really spend much time copying and pasting scripts or a lot of things like that. No. And really even layouts. Even the navigation. Usually it's in one area. And if I copy and paste a navigation to another thing, it's a little bit different. It behaves a little bit differently or has a, a couple of other segments it didn't need on the other one or something like that. Hmm. I find that I'm constantly repurposing. I'll like remember where I did something, go open that file, copy and yeah. paste it. Sometimes well, I'll put yeah, well, it into different. a library. Like if, yeah, so if you're copying like for, from one solution to another for this particular customer, that's different though, I think. That I, mean, I do all the time. But like even within your own solution... Like if you have one, like I have a, an error uh, trapping model that I mm -hmm. used and there's one script. So then I have a, uh, up towards the top of my list of scripts, I have a script that has some of my most commonly used subscripts. So I'm constantly going in that, copying that. And I'm like, okay, if I need to handle an error, I need to go get my capture error script. Mm -hmm. And then I go copy that and then go into my script and paste it. I think that may be coming from habit more than with the new workspace, actually just typing mm -hmm. in a new perform script and then selecting that. But if you think about it, sometimes that copy and paste is a little bit quicker and more efficient because you know immediately where to go mm -hmm. than it is when the, the select script dialog comes up and then you have to tab and start to filter. I wish FileMaker would just by default go to the filter or the search box on, on steps like perform script. There's so many little things that I think if they just implemented that would really improve the speed of development that somebody could develop with, such as that defaulting to a search or a filter box. Because whenever yeah. you're going to use a perform script, who wants to always start at the top of your listing of scripts? The first thing you want to do is start to find the script that you're wanting to perform. True. So. From your list of seven or eight scripts that you've written. <laughs> <laughs> or 3,000. Yeah. Like that. I think I was looking at one of my applications. There's over 100,000 lines of script code now. Oh, my gosh. There's got to be a way to deal with uh, defunct code. But it, yeah. just, it just collects collects into this morass of like yeah. spaghetti wires. We actually have meetings now where we, every couple of months, we sit down and uh, a, a small team of us go through base elements and like um, search for things that are not referenced. Yep. And so we find, oh, okay, well, there's this button, you know, search for all the layouts that are not referenced. Go delete those layouts. Then, um, you know, kind of do that one session. Then we run another DDR and say, okay, now that those layouts are not there anymore, what scripts are now not, not called by any buttons anywhere? And well, then we, we, and we go through delete those. And We should advise our listeners, don't delete, deprecate. Because as soon as you delete... I, sorry, man. I disagree you, with you. Oh, my gosh. You potentially destroy all kinds of stuff. You should be creating a folder called deprecated in your layouts. Yes, but then it's still there. Yes, it's still there, but you, you, want a, you want a period of time where you can ensure that what you thought could be deleted can for sure be deleted. Oh, I, I definitely do that. Oh. Yeah. 
like a field, and it, but it'll, it'll be different, right? So like a layout, well, actually, if you delete a layout or a script, you could potentially significantly break the solution. If you delete a field, it could be you know, really bad. So I, I use an X prefix, like an X, yeah. you know, for a field or a script or a layout if I intend for it. And I move scripts and layouts into a to-be-deleted on May 1st folder or whatever. Um, yeah, we do, we do that. But if we're going to go through like in a really big solution and there's, a, there's some things that we strongly suspect have not been used by anybody for a long time, um, and we've searched very carefully to make sure that those objects are completely unreferenced by anything, then with confidence we can delete them when it comes time to. Gotcha. But I wouldn't do it without, um, without like a tool that looks at the DDR, you know, yeah. uh, to really carefully do it. So Inspector or Base Elements are this new tool from, uh, from Dave. James. Yep. James David. <laughs> and he goes by both, yeah. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, oh, what, do you to talk s- to you. what do you say we wrap this one up? Play some music. Oh, which one do you want? You want the you want listen you want the arcade? Uh, that's not arcade sounding. Oh, okay. Well, cut that. All right. Well, uh, then we'll just uh, head out with our stereo deluxe. <laughs> nice timing. <laughs> Welcome to KFM FileMaker. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all you FileMaker listeners out there, you have a good one. <laughs>